All right. Good to have you all back. And I hope you were able to enjoy and just give thanks for the church. What a blessing it is. You know, it's, I think we often talk about how privileged we are to have a community. And not just any community, but a community that is centered on Jesus Christ, who is the Lord of all. And so talk about a time we need that more than ever. This is that time. And so I really want to um, thank you for just being a part of our life together, this body of Christ. And I hope you continue to press forward, do not stop praying, care for one another, go outward, don't uh, constrain yourself to all that you're experiencing in the moment because to have that grander view is so critical. So if you would join me in prayer, let's pray together as we begin our, our time in this word. Father, we thank you that you are so good to us, you are so faithful, you are just, you are our ever-present help in times of trouble, you are a rock, our fortress, our deliverer, in you we need not be afraid. So I thank you that you are truly, Lord Jesus, the Emmanuel, the God who is with us. Lord, cause us to see through what Paul writes here in Philippians chapter 3, how magnificent the glory of the resurrection is and how powerful it is. And to know it, to embrace it, is such a privilege and a joy for us. It's what sets us apart and empowers and fuels our faith. So Lord, we pray that you would be with us at this moment in this hour. Open our eyes to your word that we might see you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. When I was in elementary school, our school had a field trip. And the field trip was to a funeral home. Now, you might think, that's not the most, I mean, I thought you'd go to the zoo or the circus, but a funeral home. But, you know, when you're young, any field trip is exciting, and there is something exciting about going to a funeral home when you're a little kid because you just think, I have no idea what that means. It's a little scary, but it can be exciting. So we went to the funeral home, and the mortician, he took us to the embalming rooms, which were interesting. He took us to the rooms where <laughs> there were all these caskets. That was a little scary and interesting for a little kid. And then he took us to the chapel. And in the chapel, he took us to the, the wall of that chapel, and on the wall was a, a big crucifix. A crucifix is a cross with the, the picture of Jesus suffering on it. And what he did was he showed us that that wall changes with each different um, griever who would come. And so if there was a, a Catholic funeral, they'd have the cru- crucifix wall. If it was an atheist, they would actually have a blank wall. If there was a Jew, it would be the Star of David. And he said, for Protestants, for Christians, he showed us this cross. And the cross was just a very plain cross, no picture of Jesus on it at all. And he said, for Christians, they focus on the fact that Jesus is not on the cross. So for Catholics, they focus on the death of Christ. For Christians, they focus on the resurrection of Christ. And it's very, very true. 
Because while we remember and we contemplate and we fix our eyes on Good Friday, which we just passed, and we had a worship together, and it was so blessed of a time. It's important to think and to reflect on all that Jesus had done for us on the cross. But like uh, Pastor S.M. Lockridge says, it's Friday, but Sunday's coming. And that's very important for us as Christians. As important as it is for Jesus to die on a cross, if he had just died and that's it, there would be no Christianity. There would be no followers of Christ. That would have died out a long time ago with him. But we believe on this day that Jesus didn't die only, but he resurrected from the grave, from the dead. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, that if Jesus didn't rise from the grave, we are to be the most pitied of all people. So I want to look at what Paul writes about in Philippians chapter 3, verses 8 through 11, and examine why is the resurrection for Paul, in particular, so special? Why is it so prominent? Why is it so critical? And there are three areas that I want to touch on to fix our eyes on when it comes to this idea. The first is the resurrection changes our perspective. It gives us new eyes to see. Paul takes all of chapter 3. The whole of chapter 3 is Paul discussing and describing his life before he was a Christian, before he came to trust in Christ. Paul was a a Pharisee. He was very well-educated, really to the top of his field. He was a person of prestige, probably of money, definitely of social position, and he was very well-connected. As such, he he was in a position of power. He was also a Roman citizen and... Many Jews were not Roman citizens. He happened to have that. And to be a Roman citizen at this time in world history, it was far more important to be a Roman citizen than to be an American citizen. Now, America has a lot going for it all around the world. But to be a Roman citizen where Caesar had absolute power and control, that was very significant because if you were convicted of a crime you could always appeal your judgment directly to Caesar. Every Roman citizen had that right. I can't go and say, you know, I want to talk to the President of the United States. I can't do that. I could go to maybe, maybe write to a congressman, a senator, but I couldn't appeal directly to the President. The Roman citizen could, and there were very, not everyone became a Roman citizen. Paul was a Roman citizen. So he really had everything going for him. That's who he was, though. And he started identifying. He, he claimed that was his identity. That was his value, his worth. And as he was on the road to Damascus, which is just north of Israel, and he's going there to essentially persecute and prosecute Christians, he experiences something he could have never dreamt of. It wasn't just that he met Jesus, but he met Jesus, and by doing so, it changed everything in his life. You know, this past week, a couple of famous people were going live on Instagram, and they were um, living in isolation. They were talking about how hard it was, but actually it wasn't so hard because they both lived in mansions. And so they were rich and, and powerful, and so they were just showing all of their different big homes and everything while living in isolation. And they received a lot of criticism online and social media. 
because people looked at that and thought, well, I don't have that life. I'm not living like that. And you would think they would have been a little bit more discerning, a little bit more wiser at this time. But you know, it's very hard for famous, wealthy, powerful people to separate themselves from their wealth, their fame, and their power because that's their identity. So the wealthier you become, it's not just money. It becomes a part of who you are, your identity. And they're just living the way that they always live, but they're doing it publicly. And so suddenly when people see it, they get really upset by it and they think, why are you living that way? But it's impossible for them not to live that way. That's who they are. It is very difficult for someone who is very wealthy to not actually in their hearts live as though someone is very wealthy. It's very hard for a powerful person not to actually be powerful. It's also equally difficult for, and I know George and Carolyn know this well, for the poorest of the poor person to not live in their hearts as someone who is the poorest of the poor persons. So usually people who are either wealthy or poor on either extreme, they live out who they are. Everybody does that. So if you're really poor and it's easy to be succumbing to self-pity, to anger, to a sense of, well, I look at that person over there. I want to go take what they have because I don't, I'm living so poorly and they're living so wealthily and I want what they have and I'm going to take it. That heart is actually pretty consistent and commonplace. It's not out of the ordinary. It's very ordinary to live that way. What is different is when your heart internally lives different than your outer circumstances. Now, that is very rare and difficult. For Paul, he needed the Damascus Road to radically change him and transform his perspective. You know, Jesus described the wealthy person, why it was so hard for them. It was harder than a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God because at their core identity, it's just, it's in the fabric of their being. And so we are always surprised when a wealthy person actually is humble, generous, kind, who isn't demeaning, and condescending, because that's a rarity. Also, likewise, and this I really appreciate, whenever um, George and Carolyn and so many of our brothers and sisters in Africa, when they share their stories, and when we hear the stories of the care workers who are poor themselves, and they're going out and caring for other people who are poor as well, you, you have to understand how that is truly the exception of our human existence, not the rule, because... When someone who is really poor is actually out giving away and blessing others, that happens because there's a perspective change. Our default nature is to be self-protective, to be stingy, to hoard, hoard toilet paper. I mean, that's our nature. So all that we're seeing around in Costco and all... When you're seeing hoarding, people get shocked. Why are you hoarding? Well, that's who we are. No, it's the generous person who is the exception. But that generosity only comes because there's a radical shift of the way that you view the world. Paul saw this in himself. 
Look at what he says. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. We have heard of that word rubbish before, but rubbish is not a good word to describe that word. That word rubbish is, you have to think of it this way. The word is skubalon, and I've mentioned this before, but it's in in Jerusalem, right outside, there was a, a trash dump. And basically what they would do is they would take, and the trash that they threw away were not just simply banana peels and scraps of vegetables. If that were the case, it wouldn't be so bad. But it was often manure pots that would go into the trash. It was dead animals and all sorts of filth, and it would conglomerate into this one gigantic ball of the trashiest of trash you could imagine. It was disgusting. And that's the word that Paul uses. Think of the mixture of manure animal waste, animal remains, and all sorts of things just coming together, the smell, the stink, the stench. And that's what Paul uses when he says, all that that I deemed, being a Roman citizen, well-educated, money, power, all that, when I met Christ on that road, everything I began to see for what it was, it was actually keeping me from joy, from peace, from satisfaction. And it was absolutely valueless. It was the trashiest of trash. So what was this new perspective that Paul saw when he saw the resurrected Christ in Acts 9 on this road to Damascus? The new perspective that he saw was what he says in verse 9, and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul is saying he is freed from his own righteousness, meaning he's freed from having to prove himself. He doesn't have to prove himself to others. He had been trying so hard to prove himself before God, and he couldn't. He never could. He was trying to prove that he was good enough. He was smart enough. He was powerful enough. He was wealthy enough. He worked harder than everybody else. And he did. He worked very hard. But it was never good enough. And Paul says, for the first time, I don't have to do that anymore. You know, um, can you imagine all the long hours of study and then applying to be accepted to study under the leading scholar of his day, Gamaliel? So he worked really hard, he studied, he applied, and he got accepted. It's always a wonderful thing when you work hard and you get that acceptance letter. Paul, you have been accepted into the school of Gamaliel with all its rights and privileges and whatever. And he must have jumped for joy. Everybody in the whole family was jumping for joy, excited because he had been accepted. And it's easy at a certain point for Paul to think, Well, it's based on my intelligence. I worked hard. I got excellent grades. And he became under the the mentorship of this preeminent scholar. The Jewish society was very integrated. When you were accepted religiously, you were accepted politically. And you were accepted monetarily. 
So if you were at the top religiously, you were also at the top politically, and you were also at the top in terms of wealth. That all came together. Your social circle was suddenly lifted high. And so for Paul, when he applied and was accepted and he worked hard, it made sense that he would base all of his worth on that. I've done it all. It's so easy, though, for us to fall right alongside Paul. We work hard in our lives for a particular job, a career, a school, um, a position, and a, a relationships with friends, and to define ourselves by that. Paul was striving for his own righteousness, his own acceptance, based on his own hard work and what he thought God would do for him. As he responded this way, God will, of course, say, wow, Paul, you did a really great job. You worked so hard. Here are all the blessings. Here's what I'm going to give to you now. Everyone's going to love you. And, you, and, it, and it happened. He got everything he wanted. Suddenly, I think it's very tempting. And this is how it works. The more you get those acceptances, the more you're lifted up in your heart, you start saying, I must be special. I am important. God does really need me. He, he wants to bless me. And you see, the prosperity gospel is not just some preacher on the television set. The prosperity gospel is buying into the idea that your righteousness is your own and that by your work or merit or effort, God is going to prosper you and bless you more and more and more with riches, with, with uh, sociability, with friendships, positions, power. That's the dark road, the dark road of death. That is the scubalon, trashiest of trash self-righteousness that so easily but quickly comes into our souls. Paul not only calls all of this loss and rubbish, but then he says, I want instead to know something far more powerful than my own righteousness. And he calls it the power of the resurrection in verse 10 that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul, now you have to understand, when he says, I want, the pow I want to know him and the power of his resurrection, see, here's the thing about knowing him and the power of his resurrection that we might not think so much about. We do think about it on Good Friday. To know the power of a resurrection means you have to also know death. See, every one of us likes the idea of resurrection. This is Easter Sunday. Resurrection is what we live for. But you don't actually resurrect unless you die. And dying is so, so painful. There are many, many ways we die. Of course, we'll talk about the physical death, which is incredibly the, mo the most difficult of all. But there's a dying of your own priorities, your own self-will a death to your own desire to be right, a death to have control over your life. And that death is so hard. Just ask any husband or wife. I know so many people who go into a relationship saying, don't expect me to change. This is who I am. This is my personality. How dare you try to change me? 
You're not there to change me. This is my sense of humor. This is my quirky habit. This is who I am. You better accept me. That idea has the idea of, well, I'm already perfect. I've been sanctified. I don't need to change. If we are believers of Christ, the gospel tells us that we're changing all the time. We have to be open to that change. Change is painful. Change takes death. A death to yourself and a renewal to who God actually has created you to be. Which, by the way, we're not perfectly there yet. We won't be there until we see the Lord face to face. So for any one of us to say, no, I'm not changing that about myself. You don't know. That really assumes that we actually don't want a resurrection. We don't want renewal. The idea of resurrection and death as a believer of Christ is so much more than just simply the physical death. It's what physical death brings that actually causes us to say, I need to change. I need to grow. We cannot understand Sunday without Friday. And you know, it took a great cosmic supernatural power to conquer death. Death is physical death, but death has its implications in this world. Listen to what the Hebrews writer says in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. When Jesus died on the cross and resurrected, what he did was first he destroyed the work of the devil. We talked about the devil a while ago, but the devil's whole role and vision and mission is to separate you from God, and he will do anything possible to make that happen. So the resurrection closes that gap. It really enfolds the chasm so that now we can actually go to the Father. But the second thing that the resurrection does, that Jesus' work does, notice it doesn't say that, um, that he delivered us from death, but he delivers all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. There's an enslavement because of the fear of death. Death itself, yes, enslaves, but the fear of death actually is the enslaver. Now think about that for a moment. When Jesus conquered physical death, he also conquers spiritual death. He also conquers the power that physical death has over us. Death has a physical power, but it has a power that rules our lives. It enslaves us every day of every moment that we live. It tries to. It makes us enslaved over our time. Think about this time right now. We are stuck in our homes. We cannot go outside except for an occasional walk or jog. And... Maybe you're thinking, I want to do this. I want a social distance to protect others, which is great. But if we're honest, is there at all a fear of death? It doesn't necessarily mean that you're, you think, as soon as I walk outside, I'm going to die. But something is controlling us, that anxiety, that tension. It's impacting how we're viewing the world, how we listen to the news. 
It impacts the way that we think about our family. I gotta make sure everyone's okay. If we're thinking about, you know, we put out a call, hey, can we, any volunteers of City Impact? The first thought that comes into my mind is, why would I do that? That, that endangers my family. That endangers my life. Whether we want to believe it or not, there is an enslaving fear that actually controls us, and it's the fear of death. At the end, if you were to keep on saying, why, 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 at the very end, you would say, I'm afraid to die. I'm afraid of its power. Paul says, now you understand why Paul said, I want to live his life with the knowledge of the power of the resurrection, that freedom for the first time of saying, I don't, I'm not bound by what people think of me because I'm not thinking that this life is all I have because if this is all you have, then absolutely we should live to have the best reputation, the most money, the most power possible because that's what changes people. That's what makes a difference. But if the resurrection is real, if Jesus really did rise, then we're not bound to this world. And so Paul's saying there's a power in that. You can go out and bless others and not be hoarding and greedy and self-centered. That's a power, a freeing power. Death here, as Hebrews writes about, is both physical and spiritual. The spiritual part, it is happening all the time. We are facing it every moment of every day. Every time you wake up, you say, it's going to be a hard day. Just go back to sleep. You know, why do anything for anybody? Just be self-centered. Just take care of yourself. That's a death. And the question is, is there going to be a resurrection? We don't want to live with pain. Pain is, do not get me wrong. I am not saying we should seek pain. But in this world, Jesus says in John 16, 33, you will have trouble. He doesn't say you might. He says you will to his disciples. But the second part of that is take heart. I've overcome the world. So pain is a reality of our world. And let's say this, you know, this time it moves. We're all thinking, oh, man, I can't wait for May. I could go back to live my life the way it was. Travel here, do this. What if it lasts till August? What if it lasts for another year? Now let me really push the envelope. What if it lasts five years, ten years? What if? At a certain point, we're going to say, God, what are you doing to me? You know, and we don't want to live with pain. Paul actually didn't want to live with pain either. Remember he had the thorn in the flesh? We don't exactly know what that thorn was. There are many theories behind it. But there was some physical pain and he prayed to the Lord three times, please, oh Lord. You know, he, had, he performed so many miracles. And yet, the one prayer that he prayed three times, do you remember Jesus' answer? And Jesus himself answered Paul directly. Paul, my grace is sufficient for you. It wasn't that, that Jesus couldn't remove the pain. He could. In a moment, he could have. But what he wanted to show Paul, what Paul needed to learn was that grace, the power of the resurrection that, and this letter, Philippians, is being written in prison. So he's going through real hardship and he's saying in there, and I don't know what the sequence was, whether this was after the thorn in the flesh or before, 
but maybe it was after, and maybe it was the idea that he learned that actually to have the power of the resurrection, the power to actually live in pain and sorrow and still have contentment and still have God's peace, that is a power far greater than even if the thorn in the flesh were removed. We tend to think the miracle is the greatest miracle of all. But isn't it a greater miracle to actually be able to be content with sorrows and pain? I go back to Africa again because I'm looking at George and Carolyn right there. And the many visits I've had and talking to a lot of the care workers, hearing them sing and rejoice and have peace. And so many of them, when you ask them their stories and they say, well, I buried my child, buried this child, buried my grandchild. And they have so much pain, so much sorrow. And to see, to see joy and peace in the midst of that, I tell you, that is a greater miracle than if that child were to rise from the grave. What Paul is saying is that we need this resurrection power, and it comes not through physical resurrection always, but through the spiritual resurrection of our own soul from its own death that is regularly ongoing. That means that we can face persecution from well-intentioned people. We can face evil forces and dictators. The church has, on, throughout its history has gone through so much persecution and fire and trial. This is nothing compared to what the church has been through. And yet you hear the stories and so many of them say they are thankful that they know Christ more even as they suffer. That is a resurrection the power that Paul strives for is that he would be de so defined by Jesus and his cross that nothing, when he writes in Romans 8, he really believed nothing can separate me from the love of God because he's experienced many things that tried to separate him from the love of God and he found that nothing could separate him from the love of God. Certainly not a virus. So what this means is that your past both the good things and the evil things. Your rebellions, your failures, they've all been destroyed at the cross. Your present is now defined by the power of the resurrection. You are a new, you are a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are. The old is gone, the new has come. That's not, oh, but when I am in heaven, that's true. That's fully consummated there, but you are right now on the basis of what Jesus has done for you. That's as you are. What a promise. You are a new creation in Christ. The old is gone. The new has come. Could have wrote it another way. You are an old, a new, new resurrection. Death is gone. You've been resurrected, born again. Listen to the biblical language over and over. New life, abundant life. It's all throughout the Bible. We have to see res the resurrection power of Christ every day, every moment, throughout all the whole Bible. And as we do, joy. Joy more and more. And circumstances don't affect that. Let me go to this last part. Because as much as we're, we know that there's a spiritual resurrection every day of every moment, there is a physical resurrection. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, 51 through 52, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. 
For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. This is a time to think about the physical resurrection of our bodies because of Jesus' physical resurrection. Why do we have no more fear of death? Because we know this is not the end. George spoke a few weeks ago of the fact that, as Carolyn pointed out, that dot on the wall is our lives. The wall itself, far bigger than that wall is eternity. And if we really see that to be true, then we know that there is a power in actually having that perspective change. And it makes us bold and courageous. Jesus' body was broken so that you and I would one day have a new, imperishable, virus-free, glorified body. He was rejected so that you and I would be accepted. He became a curse so that you and I would be blessed. He was forsaken. He was isolated. He was socially distant from the Father so that you and I would be welcomed, embraced, loved, and cherished by the Father. He would face so much difficulty, even to his last breath. The crucifixion, you know, this is a time where COVID-19 is a respiratory illness, and so people have to get on ventilators to be able, and respirators to be able to breathe, right? Jesus was forced to not breathe. The reason why they didn't break his bones of his legs because if you were on the cross and the Romans, they really knew how to torture you. And so if you've ever had asthma or any type, because I have a little asthma, and if you ever had a hard time breathing, it is torturous. They intentionally tried to make you to not breathe but keep you as alive as long as possible. And so you'd have to lift your toes off the ground to be able to take each breath. And it was laborious, it was torturous. I mean, essentially, Jesus, he, he experienced to a far, infinitely worse, physically at least, degree of not being able to breathe than even anyone who was facing this dreaded disease. He did this for us. And we are saved to experience such freedom. He was imprisoned on that cross in a tomb so that we can live perfectly free. We get a little bit of a sense, and this is nothing, right? We get a little bit of a sense of being confined. Well, try being confined on a cross. Jesus was confined in a tomb so that we would be free to walk the new earth and to enjoy every aspect of God's new creation forever and ever. That power is what Paul wants. To have that power, to see that perspective, it helps us to live differently now, no matter what we face. During times of joylessness, there's joy. When there is no peace, there's a lot of peace. When we're restricted and stuck in homes, we're free. Even if we were in prison, even if we were to lose our lives, we would be free because we live for an eternity with him forever and ever. That gives us comfort when we mourn over loved ones. It gives us fellowship when we're isolated. And my friends, this day is that day that we remember. That's why we celebrate this day. So I hope that as you reflect and consider God's word here, that you would 
seek that one power that will never fade, the power of the resurrection. We're going to close by singing that song, and then George is going to come back and give the benediction.